The blackout was total, and it was worldwide. There was no electricity, no lights, no air conditioning, no easily accessed refrigeration, and everyone went without. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about compared to what, but first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, it's Seth, and this is a podcast. It's a podcast produced by Alex De Palma. Alex is a bit of a podcast whisperer. Alex and I are inviting you to join us in the podcasting workshop. And this is Alex De Palma, Seth's co-teacher and producer. In this class, you'll learn not just the technology to make a podcast, because honestly, it's pretty easy. You'll learn to find your voice. You'll learn to find the others. And together in this proven workshop that's back again, you'll discover that you can make a podcast. Not to make money, because unfortunately you probably won't, but to make a difference, to be heard, and to find the people who want to hear from you, which is even more important. I hope you'll check it out. Visit akimbo.com slash go for all the upcoming workshops. Go make a ruckus. I'm talking about the blackout of 1812. In fact, of all the years before 1812, 1820, 1830, 1840, when there was no electricity and no one really missed it. They didn't miss it because their neighbors didn't have electricity. They didn't miss it because they had never had electricity. And so, compared to what? We navigate our days on this planet by looking around, by understanding what is going on in the culture, and then making a decision about our state. Ambien is a popular sleep medication, particularly in the United States. Here's the question. How much extra sleep do you get if you take Ambien as directed? According to one study I read, 18 minutes. You get 18 extra minutes of sleep over an eight-hour period of time by taking this powerful drug. So, if you're only getting 18 minutes of sleep with a drug with side effects, why on earth do people take it? Well, it turns out that Ambien is an amnesiac. It makes you forget that you didn't sleep. That if you forget that you didn't sleep, apparently, for many people, the next day is better because you're not carrying around a story of defective sleep. You're not wondering whether other people slept better than you, that somehow you are behind. Back before the big blackout of 1840, when people went to sleep, they often woke up at one o'clock in the morning, had a snack, hung out with family, and they went back to sleep for what was called second sleep. It was normal to not sleep in one place for eight or nine hours in a row. Compared to what? And marketers are complicit in our dissatisfaction. Because as mass media came along, industrialism was also on the rise, and they were the perfect couple. Because industrialists needed a way to sell more stuff, because they were making more stuff than ever before. And mass media was this magical tool that helped them sell more stuff. And usually when we think about mass media, we say, well, yeah, because you could put an ad in front of a lot of people. But the other thing that radio and then television did was sell people around the world on peace and prosperity, 
on, quote, the American dream and on attainable satisfaction that if you just bought this item, your life would get better. That if we think about the great sitcoms of the 1960s, most of them involved lives that could at least be visualized by most of the people who were watching them. That the distance between you and living like Andy of Mayberry, or you and living a life like Dick and Laura Petrie on Bonnie Meadow Lane in Nourishell, New York, wasn't that wide. It was just enough to create dissatisfaction that could be solved by working a few more hours, working a little bit harder, figuring out how to get the money, borrow it if necessary to buy that one next item. And so a ratchet started to spread. And it was endorsed and paid for by mass marketers because they understood that if they could sell people on Ovaltine creating family harmony, well, then people would go buy some Ovaltine. And the carrot strapped to the front of the donkey kept the donkey moving, step by step trying to bite the carrot. But over time, what the media has done is moved the carrot further and further away. Maybe it started with the TV show Dallas. My guess is it started probably before that. Because now we saw the lives of people, royalty, that we could never hope to attain. Not just the royalty of spending money for a ranch or a private jet, but the unobtainable beauty that so many of the people in the movies or television were parading around, the fairy tale lifestyle. All of these things became unobtainable. And so the gap kept widening. That what media did was give us something to compare to that we couldn't get our hands on, that felt like it was frustrating as opposed to incentivizing. And then we enter the world of social media because social media was supposed to be this thing of authenticity. Social media was supposed to be your neighbor, your friends, your classmates. But grooming went on, social grooming. How do I put myself forward in the most perfect way possible? If my day has 1,000 moments, how do I find the four moments that are so perfect that are worth sharing and put them online for people to see? Well, if you are surrounded by nothing but that, then compared to what starts to kick in. And at the very same time, breaking news and catastrophizing got turned up many notches. During the Vietnam War, you got the newspaper once or twice a day, you watched Walter Cronkite, and that was it. That was all the media that was available for the typical person to consume. Now, the catastrophes are around every corner. They are around every corner for 24 hours a day. The doom scrolling is a business model. There are billionaires who make a profit by making you feel nervous, by making you feel like you have to doom scroll some more, somehow looking for solace, looking for a way to make it all go away. And so we've got these two pillars in front of us on a regular basis. On one hand, the perfect life, the convenient life, the easy life, the magical life, the life of a princess. There it is, 
You can see it with one click. But then turn around. There are the catastrophes waiting around every corner. There are all the things that just can't possibly work. Now, I don't want to minimize either one of these things as useful motivators. We need to be aware of defects in our culture and society so we can do something about them. Walter Cronkite was a hero for pointing out how toxic the Vietnam War was, not just to people in the United States, but to the victims in Southeast Asia. And in our current environment, citizenry need to speak up and stand up and do something about the injustices that are all around us. But that doesn't mean it is useful for it to be the narrative of our entire day. And those things we aspire to, those perfect cabinets made by the carpenter on YouTube, or that perfect complexion that we see in a cosmetic video, well, we get something out of vicariously experiencing joy or delight or perfection. And I don't want that to go away completely. But I think we need to remind ourselves that if there's a business model, if someone's going to make a profit by manipulating us and changing our state, they are likely to try. And it is up to us to decide whether or not we want to take the Ambien, whether or not we want an amnesiac, whether or not we want to sign up for a life of dissatisfaction, or if our time would be better spent weaving together community and making things better by making better things. That's my rant. You may ask yourself, where does that highway go to? And you may ask yourself, am I right? Am I wrong? And you may say to yourself... We'll be back in a minute with answers to questions from last time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. While you're there, you can check out the show notes. Hi, Seth. This is Tracy. Thanks for your podcasts and sharing your thinking. I really appreciate it. I recently listened to your podcast on the algorithm of division. It's a complex topic for me because my job as a marketer is to reach target audiences with information that is relevant to what they're searching for. It's especially important because um, many of my clients are pharma companies trying to reach physicians with new research that can help patients. But aside from a customer's initial search, 
cookies and retargeting someone who's engaged with content has been the primary way to keep content in front of that customer. With so much available inventory in this endless digital ecosystem, targeting would seem like a helpful tool for both audiences, the customer and the marketer. But cookies, as the targeting tags are called, are being mandated to go away. In a year or so, marketers won't be able to use them. As a professional who is also very passionate about brands and how they show up in the world, I actually embrace the idea of a cookie-less world. It's a chance for creativity to replace cookies, for brands to really show up experientially, not based on search algorithms. I'm hoping you can expand on the idea of brands and how they show up in the cookie-less world. Thanks again for all that you do. Take care. Thank you for this. It's so complicated. I will try not to talk for too long. But first, some background for people who are just joining us, or even for people who aren't just joining us. Cookies were invented for a very simple reason. The web was a dumb browser. It treated everybody the same way. Someone who came to a website 20 times was treated the same as if they're only there for the first time. And creating a small tiny, tiny little file that was on the user's computer that was accessible by the website enabled sites to do a very simple thing, tell people apart. The rules in the early days of cookies were very clear. The only cookie you got to see was the cookie you placed on someone's computer. So when I was running Squidoo, which was before Pinterest or Facebook, the idea was that Squidoo could place a cookie and then we would know if you were a user and could treat you differently than if you were a stranger. But that's all we knew. And then some people hacked the system and came up with a way that there could be a universal cookie where you would pay a third party who had a little slot on your website and access to your cookie and other people's cookies and by combining lots and lots of information as you traveled around the web, users were tracked. Users had no say in this. Users weren't given a vote in this. It just happened. So the first thing is the whole thing was a fairly recent hack. Second, long before cookies, there was marketing and there will be marketing after cookies. Before cookies, businesses figured out ways to deliver anticipated, personal, and relevant messages to the people who want to get them. And it's important to note that consumers do not care about privacy. You gave up all of your privacy as soon as you got a credit card because the credit card company knows an enormous amount about you, and that's fine with you. What most people care about isn't privacy, it's being surprised. We don't want the credit card company to suddenly call us up in the middle of the night and say, we notice you've been staying in a lot of hourly motels and we think you're having an affair. Would you like a coupon for some STD testing? Because even though that might be in our long-term interest, it's not a surprise we signed up for. And so a lot of the pushback against the misuse of cookies has been from people who say, why are these ads following me around the web? How did they know I was looking at that brand of shoes when I'm over here at a totally different website. Marketers sometimes, under pressure, race to the bottom. Short-term, narcissistic, profit-maximizing says, we don't care what we're going to do to the ecosystem or the culture. 
Let's just keep spamming people for as long as we can get away with it. At the same time, the tech titans saw that they were giving away power when they allowed third parties to have all this cookie access because you wouldn't have to go back to buy fresh information from Google if you could find that information in other ways. Google has a long history of finding useful things on the web like RSS and blogs or email newsletters and shutting them down because they understand that if they shut them down, marketers with money will have no choice but to come back to Google. And Apple seeking to differentiate itself from Google because Apple doesn't have a strong web presence. Even though they have all the money in the world, they don't own any significant web properties. And so as the web becomes more of an entity that doesn't care what device you're accessing it with, Apple is figuring out ways to stand for something so its users will pick them. Hence, Apple's decision to shut Facebook out of the idea of tracking. They're saying they're doing it in the interests of privacy. I think they're mostly doing it in the interests of market power. So with all that said, what does a marketer do? Well, you started your question by pointing out that your role is to help the 450,000 doctors in the United States get new medical information that they are looking for, that they are interested in. And of those 450,000 docs, I think it's fair to say that there's only 50 to 100,000 of them that are actually interested in the kind of medical information you have to share. So paying all this money to chase people around the web based on guesses from incomplete cookie data isn't the way to build an entity for the long haul. The way to do it is to get the active engagement of the docs. That's why medical journals are so valuable, because medical journals aren't spam. Medical journals are something that doctors pay to read, and thus the key tenet of permission marketing, anticipated personal and relevant messages to people who want to get them. And the opportunity that marketers have is the same opportunity they had when I wrote that book 25 years ago. It's simple. If you own an asset, the privilege of talking to people who want to be talked to, everything else gets easier. Is it hard to build that asset? There's no question about it. Will you have to change your business model? Of course you will. But that's okay because the business models keep changing. All of us who are living on the web are doing something that didn't even exist three decades ago. And so it's going to change again. And the race continues to be the same race it was then. Who has the right, the privilege, the ability to talk to people who want to be talked to? If you think about Google's multi-trillion dollar value, where does it come from? Because the fact is, a bunch of smart programmers could build a search engine that most people couldn't tell apart from Google. Plenty of people have built email engines and go down the list. What Google lives on is the fact that people trust them, the fact that people come there to do their searches, the fact that they have a connection to people right in the moment they're looking for information. But that doesn't mean it's permanent, and it doesn't mean that you can't figure out in your niche where you stand for something, how to earn the attention of people as opposed to going for a free ride with them. I hope that helps. Thanks. My name is Matt, and I live in Bangkok, Thailand. And 
I feel like I kind of live under a rock uh, because I just recently found out about your uh, podcast on Akimbo after having read and loved your books. In any case, I have a question, and that's um, when is there going to be critical mass on um, really an understanding that, if anything, the pandemic has really allowed us to do things differently and has created a, a real sense of resilience um, and so when when do you suppose will be the time when we finally look back and go, you know what, we're through it, and we're actually stronger than ever? So again, thanks for everything you do, and I look forward to your answer. I wish I had a really smiley, optimistic answer to this, but if history is any guide, here's what we know. Natural disasters, man-made disasters, wars, famines, pandemics, they come, and if we're lucky, they go. And after they go, most of the people, most of the time, forget the lesson that historians and leaders would like us to remember. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And unfortunately, we have a culture that doesn't really remember. And so after a flood wipes out huge sections of the Northeast, people rebuild their houses right on that coast. After we see the enormous cost of racial injustice, of caste systems, of treating people as separate, as lesser, well, maybe we fix that one, but then we turn right around and do it again. Because human beings, at least in the West, at least in the 20th and 21st centuries, are confident that this time it's different, and they're confident that they're right because the media keeps reminding us that this time it's different. And the media understands that the easiest way to sell us something is to remind us that we were right all along. So getting us to change our long-term habits because we learned a lesson, that's not usually the way change happens. So generally, the way we change our minds is not because we learn an important historical lesson. It's because there's a tumbling, a tumbling of dominoes. If you think about how we ended up with our fear of nuclear weapons, which has persisted much longer than I would have expected. It's not a straight line from Hiroshima and Nagasaki to today. It, in fact, changed the minds of some people, some leaders who stared right at it and blinked. And those leaders then changed the minds of dozens of people around them which then started to reach into the media and then, and then, and then, and then. And this cycle of, oh, well, we've always felt that way, is the way most people think about culture. And it gets there slowly, not all at once. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? 
When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.